So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stood fast through faith. You stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Hear the word of the Lord. God's ways are not our ways. Isn't that true? Isaiah said it was. At times, God's ways are surprising to us. We would not have predicted it. But his plans are always right and good. We trust him because of his track record. After Good Friday, we conclude that God is loving and that he acts in our best interest. What a Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. He loved us and gave himself for us. But oh, we take so much for granted. We see our Lord's generosity and sacrifice, yes. But this passage asks us this morning, do we really understand who God is? Do we note that this kind, benevolent God, this kind, generous God is also holy, just, and here's a scriptural word, severe. Look at verse 22. Note. Apostle Paul, what do you want us to note? Note then 
the kindness. Yeah, preach it, kindness. And the severity of God. This is a call to fear God. This is a call to understand the God of the Bible. This is a call to perseverance in faith, hope, obedience, repentance, and vital life. Is this us at Calvary Baptist Church? Here we are together. You remember as we work through Romans 9, 10, and 11, three very unique chapters in the Bible, three very unique chapters among the letters in the New Testament, Paul is answering the question, what happened to Abraham's family? If God promised Abraham through him, Messiah would come, Jesus comes, Abraham's family substantially wanted nothing to do with him. What gives? Are God's plans off the rails? In 9-1, chapter 9, verse 1, Paul's saying, my heart's desire is that Israel would turn and believe in Jesus. In chapter 10, he says that I, this is my prayer that they might be saved. So in chapter 11, he says, should I conclude that God is finished with Israel? I ask then, 11.1, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he goes on to give an answer. So he comes to verse 11 and asks the question again. So I ask, did they stumble? By all standards of measure, Israel stumbled at the invitation and fell down. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And Paul is saying, no, you don't understand the genius of the plan of God. They stumbled in unbelief to give the Gentiles an opportunity to believe that then provoked them to jealousy. And along the way, in the consummation at the end, they will come full circle and come to embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah. So that's what's going on here. And he's doing a lot of explaining. Now, explaining, a lot of explaining is not the easiest preaching to absorb. It's like, Eric, I can only absorb so much explaining. Uh, get me to living. Now, here we come finally, after 9, 10, and 11, back to, we're swinging back to some instructions for life. He gets very earthy and practical here. There are four imperatives that shows up. Now, I don't remember eighth grade grammar either, but Mrs. Pallant Mrs. was trying to teach me grammar and the indicative mood in verbs. And she also tried to pound into my head the imperative mood. The imperatives are commands, calls to action. Well, Paul returns from the indicative, the explaining mood, to the imperative, the instruction mood, he returns to that in chapter 11, so that's where we're here. Now, we're going to go two different directions this morning. I want to explain Paul's logic in these verses, and you noted with me the structural marker in verse 13. He stops. He's been talking about Jews and their response to Jesus to a substantial Gentile crowd. But in verse 13, he addresses this Gentile crowd specifically with some instructions. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you, Gentiles, and here he is, the quintessential person to help them understand. A Jewish man converted to Christ who is an apostle, a sent one to the Gentiles. 
So he's the quintessential person, and that's how he starts in verse 13. So let's do this. First, I want to explain the logic of his argument, and then I want to talk about living. What are the implications of his argument for living? So here we go. What is the apostle saying in these verses? What is his logic? What pictures does he use to explain the force of his argument? He's going to pick up two pictures that Jewish people in the first century would have understand with ringing clarity. I'll try to explain them so they will be made more clear to us. There are two assertions that he makes. Assertion number one, the plan of God is unfolding flawlessly. Look at verse 1, look at verse 11, and look at verse 13. He picks up the critic's question, did Israel stumble then in order that they might just fall? Is that the point, that they would just fall down and be done with, God's finished with them? Not at all, Paul says. And so in verse 13, he addresses the group of Gentiles listening, thinking about this. The topic is the place of Israel, Abraham's children, in the plan of God. Remember, Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus came through the promises given to Abraham. And so it's like, well, if, if salvation has come through the Jews, how comes the Jews weren't interested in salvation? That's the question. That's the topic he's talking about in this chapter. And to them, it looked like the plan of God was a hot mess. Have you ever hired a general contractor to do a job for you? And early on in the job, they got in the dirt and they scratched around and you looked out and um, it, it looked like a war zone. And it looked like, I, I can't believe what I did. I signed a contract to make a mud hole. And here we are. And so you get upset. And it's, you, know, you, you don't see the whole thing. You don't see where it's going. You don't see how it's going. And you go out there and you say, look, I, I need to talk to you. And the general contractor says, well, what, what do you want to talk about? He says, what's going on? What, what, what do you mean, what's going on? Well, look at this. This, is, this doesn't look anything at all like I anticipated it to look. In my mind's eye, I saw the completed project, and all I see here is mud and, and a hole, and um, this isn't going anywhere. What's wrong? The general contractor would say to you, listen, this is going just exactly how I anticipated it to go. You wait. You will see what you want to see in its fully completed form. We just aren't there yet. So don't mistake this mud hole for chaos. This is very intentional, this mud hole, and it's going to turn out in the end to be just exactly what you want. Now, verse 13, he describes that God is using the Gentile world's reception of Jesus to provoke Jewish thought. Now, he's introduced this thought before, but he gets really specific here in this section of chapter 11. Now, let us never conclude that God is done working in his world and among his people. Every once in a while, we stumble upon a time where we stare at the providences that we are going through and we, we conclude somehow God's plans seem to be going awry. I mean, I read in here about all the, all the stuff that's supposed to happen to his children, but as I look at it, 
This looks like a hot mess of a mud hole in my, the backyard of my life. But this teaches us never to conclude that anything is going off the rails with God's intentions. May your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven all the time. Now, the second assertion is this. He uses two illustrations to prove that Israel has a future. Look at verses 15 and 16 and verses 23 and 24. Notice how 24 anticipates a future for Israel. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, we'll talk about that in a moment, but what do you say? You Gentiles, you, you weren't born with Abraham's blood and all the great promises came to Abraham. But if you were drafted in contrary to nature, I mean, this wasn't your family, but God by his grace brought you into the family, into a cultivated olive tree that would be for Israel, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree, anticipating a responsiveness from Jewish people? Now, he uses two illustrations. Number one is a lump of dough. Look at verse 16. For if their rejection, that would be the Jewish nation's rejection of Jesus, means the reconciliation of the world, because when they rejected him, Gentiles began to open their hearts to them, what will their acceptance mean? And what is that if not future? That hasn't happened yet. But life from the dead. You say, Eric, it looks to me like Jewish people are substantially dead to Jesus. Unresponsive. Well, hello, that's where all of us were before God opened our dead hearts and made us alive to Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, the good news message about Jesus, there's the power of the resurrection that makes dead people alive to God where formerly they were totally indifferent. And so he, if the dough, verse 16, if the dough, here's illustration number one, if the dough is offered as first fruits, is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, here's a, here's a lump of dough. And, um, you know, we, we aren't making bread from scratch anymore. And there's some really high-octane bread machines now, you know, that can do it all for you, I suppose. But uh, it used to be, you know, that, that uh, Grandma would have her apron on and had flour stuff all over it and all up her arms. And she had that big, big globular cluster of dough there on the counter. And she was kneading it. Uh, well, bread has been a staple of our diet forever. Very important in the ancient Near East. And um, so uh, in, in, in the Jewish sacrifice, you offered everything unto the Lord. So you make a dough, you, you offer it unto the Lord. And you did that by taking a pinch, a part of the whole, and offering it to the Lord. But in the pinch, it was representative of the whole. And the very part of the dough was offered unto the Lord in a pinch, but it had a relatedness to the whole that was offered unto the Lord. And what he is doing with this illustration is he is saying, okay, there's been just a few Jewish people who've come to place their faith in Christ, but they are like the first fruits of a greater emergence of a sacrifice that's coming in the whole loaf. And that day is yet coming. So he uses that as an illustration. Abraham is the loaf. 
His people are still God's people. God isn't finished with them. Now then he uses the illustration of olive trees. Now let's say we are cultivating an olive grove and we're we're several generations away from the olive grove cultivations that our forefathers did. Of course, we don't live in a climate that is given to a lot of olive groves around here. But if we were in the Mediterranean and we were living in the ancient Near East, why, this would be very familiar to us. Oh, we grow, we use a lot of olive oil, so olive trees were valuable, and we would cultivate them. And we would put the equivalent of those bags of water on them in the dry season and irrigate them and set them up and uh, mulch around them to keep their roots moist and prune them back so that they would grow. And along the way, we get these producing cultivated olive trees. Well, then they would get tired. And there would be a decreasing amount of olives produced on the tree. And in order to jumpstart them, to get them going, they did something unusual. They grafted them. But what they did was they'd look around for an uncultivated wild olive shoot just springing up off of some root someplace, and they would cut it. Then they would prune the branch back, and they would cut into the top of the branch And they would put one of those little shoots in one place, one in another, tape it up, and it looks like this. And something very interesting happens. That wild olive shoot begins to kickstart the old plant falling into dormancy, and suddenly that tree takes vivid life. It was waning and falling in vitality, but that grafting in gives it new life, the functional equivalent of a cold day and a bad battery and somebody jump-starting you, and it takes life again, and you take off. In the same way, this is his picture. And so what Paul is saying is these uncultivated, wild Shoots. Who are they? That's the Gentile people who heard about Jesus, did not have the promises of God and Abraham, who said, hey, this Jesus sounds great. I am a sinner. Jesus is said to be a sin bearer. God is holy. I am in my sin unholy. I've put myself instead for God's judgment. But God came running after me and Jesus and offered himself as the sacrifice. And in believing in Jesus, I can come to have my sin forgiven and resolved. And my guilt and my yesterday, past imperfect as it is, resolved in Jesus. And I'm forgiven and I have life. And then he was raised from the dead and I have hope. I like this Jewish Jesus. I want this Jewish Jesus. I invite this Jewish Jesus into my life as my Savior. And many Gentiles came to place their faith in Christ. Well, this had an effect upon Jewish people who are watching what's going on. And it will have a continuing effect. And this is what he's talking about. And these wild olive shoots that nobody cultivated were grafted in remember the life is in the vine the life is in the tree and they're brought in to have this life the restoration of israel is depicted as the coming together of dead dry bones which are then given life fresh life vivid life what he talks about in verse 15 is life out of death 
The method to simulate the new life was to graft in the wild shoots. I don't know how many horticulturalists there are here this morning who got into grafting before. It's a fascinating discipline. This becomes a central argument for what God is doing in our age. Eric, what in the world? And it looks like a hot mess. What's God doing? He is working among the Gentile world to bring men and women and boys and girls to come to place their faith in Christ. I wonder if he's working in the room this morning to bring your heart to responsiveness to Jesus. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Has God brought you here today to begin with him? How we would love to talk to you about that, if that is in fact what's going on. But as Gentiles are grafted in, these wild olive shoots that are brought in, the life of the root, Jesus Christ, takes flight in their life. And it gives vitality to the whole bush. Now, that's the apostles' logic in these verses. Okay, Eric, i got to go to work. What does this mean? Why does this matter? How do we live before a God so generous in mercy, holiness, and justice? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, he says. There are three dimensions of the challenge in this passage. Dimension number one, be humble. We see ourselves rightly and we cultivate humility. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, that would be us, we who've received Christ from the Gentiles, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, imperative number one, verse 18, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. None of us are here because we are great branches. We are all here because the root is outstanding and we're sucking the life off of him and its glorious life. A bragging grafted shoot doesn't make any logical sense. We're here because of the root. There's no room for boasting in the family of God. None of us deserve being here. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. How our age is full of the rich in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's humility. Jonathan Edwards called that, and I love his depiction of it, the queen discipline. Now, let's contrast two kinds of experiences. There's an English phrase that's uh, this, I wanted to pinch myself. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's somebody saying, I was someplace, realized I didn't deserve to be there, was enjoying the experience, and had to pinch myself to see if it was real and it was really happening, or had I lopped into a nap and a decent dream. It is being overwhelmed with a sense of, I don't belong here, but it's sure glorious to be here. Now think of that kind of experience. I've told you before, once I spoke to the Philadelphia 76er professional basketball team before their game. 
And um, after the game, I was invited to go to the players' lounge where all the food and the stuff is, and the players came in with their entourages. And um, I was there only because my mentor was 16 years the chaplain for the Sixers, and he poured himself into me, and I love him. I wanted to be with him. He said, Eric, why don't you speak tonight? And so I, I did. It, it was fascinating. It's an interesting experience. But when I got in that room, and, and I'm not holy and do everything right, but I actually felt a little guilty in that room. It was like I was in the room, and it was like, of all rooms where you belong, it's not this one. I mean, first of all, here, here's, here's, you know, a spread for the NBA players. And there's a lot of money in professional sports, and the spread was pretty good. And the lounge was pretty nice. And um, I, even, I, you know, I felt guilty eating food. I felt, you know, it's like I felt out of place. It's kind of, you know, there. And they're all chumming it up with each other, have a lot of history with each other. And then there's me and my family. It's also fascinating. Uh, our son wanted Allen Iverson's autograph. And uh, Allen Iverson was behind this huge entourage of uh, urban homies that were in there with him. And so he, he walked to that one section of the room, and then he lost, he lost heart. And he came back, and then so he walked back. And uh, our daughter, I don't know how old she was at the time. Maybe she's, she's five. She didn't care about anything. And she saw this going on. She said, Caleb, you want Iverson's autograph? He said, yeah, I was trying to get it. Give me that piece of paper. She, took, she just went, waited right through the answer. I said, hey, I need your autograph. And then he signed it. And she brought it back and gave it to Caleb, you know. <laughs> uh, that's what I remember about that night. But I also remember how awkward I felt. I, I, that, I, I didn't belong there. I was an invited guest. But the other thing that I noticed was that I may have been the only person in the room who felt awkward. Others thought, man, this is fat city. I'm going to take full advantage of this. And, and, and they were belling up to the provisions as if they were owed this. Uh, this is something that belonged to them. Uh, yeah, they, they deserve to be there. Uh, now, it's not about me being righteous and them being unrighteous. The point is, in the room with Jesus, we need to keep pinching ourselves. And be very wary of that spirit that rises up that says anything that's near. You know what? I really belong here. This is really my crowd. No, our crowd that we are most well suited for will be in hell. Because we all deserve the judgment of God. But because we know somebody, and that's how I got in that room that night, my brother, our brother Christ has brought us into the king's provisions. And as we stand there, one of the glories of a good church is just to keep pinching themselves and looking at each other and saying, we don't deserve this. And we are here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Is that us? Is that who we are? Pride is the most misplaced spirit in the family of God. Now look at verse 20. This next point goes with it. Do not be proud, but fear where is the fear of God today? Oh, Eric, I've read that verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The ungodly, they don't have a lick of fear of God. Well, that's true. But I have another question. Where is the fear of God among the people of God? Are we trending 
toward a bizarre moment where it can be said of us, there is no fear of God before their eyes. J.I. Packer said that one of the most important ands, A-N-D, the little connective word, one of the most important ands in the Bible is in Romans eleven twenty-two. Look at that verse with me. Here's another command. Note, note this, note then the kindness. Amen, preacher, preach it. And the severity of God. Well, stop there. I need to go eat lunch. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. We must have the Bible shape our understanding of God. How we love 22a, and it is true, and I'm so pleased to announce to you what the Bible declares is true, that God is kind. Remember, Paul's also already said in Romans 2, 4, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He is kind. He couldn't be any more kind. But as he is kind, he is also severe. And to understand the God of the Bible, you need to understand, we need to understand, he's both. Note, what are we to note about God? What are we to understand about God? Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. He cut the branches off. But God's kindness to you, Gentiles, Provided you continue in his kindness. We're going to come back to that word continue with our third point. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in. Again. Packer talks about, and by the way, I gave some thought to simply not using any of my words, just reading you the chapter, the kindness and severity of God in the book Knowing God. If you have that book at home, it'd be a great follow. Just read that chapter. It's better than anything I would say. It's very well spoken. But Packer talks about how most people come in the spirit of our age just to understand God as some kind of a Santa Claus who gives out gifts, Oh, sure, there's the, you know, lump of coal in there someplace, but it, it's, it's not an overwhelming concept in Santa Claus lore. He just gives gifts. Is God a cosmic Santa Claus? Packer writes, people have got into the way of following private religious hunches rather than learning of God from his own word. Modern man thinks of all religions as equal and equivalent and draws his stock of ideas about God from pagan as well as Christian sources. And we have to try and show people the uniqueness and finality of Jesus Christ. People today are in the habit of disassociating the thought of God's goodness from that of his severity. Modern Protestants are given are not going to give us their enlightened adherence to the doctrine of a celestial Santa Claus. The certainty that there is not more to be said of God than that he is infinitely forbearing and kind 
is as hard to eradicate as bindweed, which in England is like a weed that's hard to get out of your yard. We need to feel in the fear of God the very real threat of facing the severity of God. Be humble, fear God, lastly, keep going. We persevere in responsive faith. Look at verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Here's another command. Stand fast through faith. Look at verses 22 and 23. Watch for the word continue. Watch for the word remain. Provided you continue in his kindness. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, if there's an interruption in our unbelief, God graciously brings us back in repentance and he restores our soul. There's always the opportunity. But the threat is branches broken off. Remember, he prunes the branches. Now, by the way, God is never impressed with branches. He's all about fruit. A big branch that looks beautiful is nothing if it doesn't produce fruit. What did Jesus say? By their fruit, you shall know them. By their fruit. The critical terms again, remain, continue. The anticipation of the Bible is that the people of God remain and continue. Notice the real threats of verse 19, branches broken off. Verse 22, severe on the fallen. One could say that God is not messing around or playing around with us, or to use Paul's words, that God is not mocked. While we live, and I love this about God, repentance is always an open door. But God is not mocked at our indifference. Our growing indifference may say that uh, we've actually never come to saving reliance on Jesus. Now, doubt is real, and we face episodes of doubt and come in and out of doubt that's resolved in continuing faith. But unbelief grows and metastasizes. There's a great difference in standing and persevering faith and giving out and walking away. Notice those fruitless branches, and fruit is always the quintessential sign of life related to the branch, related to the vine. Those fruitless branches are taken away and burned. We need to feel that threat. Paul disabuses us of the notion that God's grades on the curve and growing dormant and unresponsive doesn't matter to God. I'm convinced that on all fronts, the coming of Jesus will bring a rude awakening to many. It is still this morning a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Behold, note the kindness and severity of God. It's also true that Jude 24 and 25 
are still in the Bible. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to preserve us without fault or blame and with great joy at his coming. Our only God and Savior, Jesus Christ, continuing, remaining, these are the anchor verbs of perseverance. It's the true test of the authentic. Do they or do they not keep going? Bruce said it is by faith that membership in God's family is secured and maintained. God's family is a believing family, a continuing believing family. The unbelieving don't belong there nor exist there. I remember it as about five blocks away from Westminster Abbey in London is Westminster Chapel. It was where for over 40 years Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, preached. In fact, he was a friend of Warren Wiersbe and he was writing a book in Cincinnati and he preached here uh, at Calvary, stood right here in this place. I think of him sometimes when, when I stand here. Great preacher. Uh, he had quite a massive influence. And there was a man who decided, I'm going to figure out why God is using Martin Lloyd-Jones. So he came, and he went to some services. He came to London. And he listened to him preach, and he said, well, okay, is that it? And by the way, he was just a majestic order. And so then he, uh, he watched him interact with the people after the service, and he noticed the distinctive way that he related. And, and then he noticed that he gathered in a vestibule and many people would come by him. So he said, I'm going to go sit in the vestibule. And he went and sat down and he watched him. And he noted at the conclusion of a conversation, he would often lean down and he would say something into the ear of the congregant. And he thought, I'm going to figure out what he's saying. And so he, uh, he got up close and, and he thought he heard it that first time. He said, could, could that have been it? Keep going. Was that it? Is he saying that? What? Is that all it is? Keep going? Well, what kind of a thing is that to say? And he left and drove away disappointed that he didn't, couldn't find the secret. But then he started thinking about that little phrase, which I've laid hold of as my greeting for life. Keep going. And the more he pondered it, the more he realized the wisdom and just taking that next step and with courage doing that next thing and of dollar cost averaging, being obedient with a repentant heart that sustains belief and in the face of hard things just takes the next step and a commentary on their existence would be, well, they just kept going. And the New Testament describes that phenomenon made possible by the grace of God's work in our life and the life of the root showing up in the branch that issues in fruit as the bona fide evidence of sincere conversion to Christ. Is that who we are as God's people? Is God cutting a branch off Slicing a little cut and 
graphing in a wild shoot of a thought that's going to stimulate you on to love and good works and persevering obedience this morning. That would certainly be my prayer. Let's pray. Father, many of our souls are like, what is it, the first law of thermodynamics, all the energy is running down. And in the face of that, there's this endless issue and wellspring of eternal life that springs up in our soul because Jesus lives there and the life of the root has captured the vitality of our spirit and sustains it and causes it. Oh Lord, make us to be a responsive lot to you. How desperate we are for Jesus. We're all beggars brought into the room with such provision because of your grace. And then you use your work in our life to provoke others to think of their own response to Jesus. So Lord, sustain your work, keep it up, and help us to persevere and keep going ourselves in obedience and faith and joy and faithfulness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.